Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food and Health Talks. On the last episode, we discussed the exciting innovations in food, bringing different alternate sources of protein to the market. The discussion on this innovative product brought up the issue of consumer safety. And this is really from the perspective of getting more scientists and experts to ask questions, a separate set of questions. Not questions focused on how to appeal to the consumer's taste and how to understand flavor, texture, and visual appeal of this innovative product. uh, These are all important, but we need to ask a separate set of questions. Questions focused on understanding the long-term impact of all the ingredients used in producing these innovative products. The truth is, we'll never know until we ask questions. And having independent scientists um, in academic institutions or research institutions, partnering with these companies, startups and established ones alike, to ask the right questions will go a long way in ensuring safety of consumers when these products scale. Safety not just on the short term, safety on the long term. And talking about safety, there is an organization, a body here in the U.S. that regulates um, safety of innovative products. And I was fortunate to uh, have a conversation with the director of food and additive safety at the Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Dennis Keith, last year at the Food Niche Global Health Summit. It discussed what his office um, does to ensure consumer safety, and he also described the journey they're on to understand this innovative products and how they are working with innovators themselves to figure out how to ensure consumer safety. So, take a listen and enjoy. You know, when you think about what you find on the shelves today, the innovative products that you find on the shelves today, by that I mean food, a beverage, or even the um, newer um, food types, food products like think about cultured meat, cultured seafood, different types of exciting place today. Who regulates them? 
we ensure safety for the consumers. Who puts a balance and, and control what enters the marketplace? Well, there's a regulatory body called the FDA, and there's a particular office that, um, that is responsible for additive safety and ingredients uh, that enter into the marketplace. And we are fortunate to have the director of this office, um, Dr. Dennis Keith. I believe the information um, here is very valuable and it's something people should know. It gives you confidence that there are regulatory measures in place to protect you, um, protect consumers, and also innovators, you will learn what you need to do, action steps you need to take if you're planning to bring something innovative um, into the marketplace, especially when it comes to food and beverage. So join me and let's welcome Dr. Keith. Thank you, Julia. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you today and, and to talk to the, the people today on, online. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm the director of the Office of Food Additive Safety. Um, and this office is responsible for the pre-market review of ingredients that are intentionally added to food. And how we approach this responsibility in terms of safety is driven not only by the science, but by our legal authorities. And that is what's in the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And I'd, I hope to be able to, uh, during this session today, talk a bit about how we do that and answer questions about how we approach the, the safety assessments prior to market entry of new food ingredients. And by that, I mean things like food additives, color additives, uh, substances that are generally recognized as safe, substances used in packaging and food contact materials, foods derived from new varieties of plants, and also more recently, the, uh, the development of uh, the expectation, the attempt, the innovation of, of using cell culture of animal cells to produce uh, meat as a food source. So our, our office is, in, is involved with developing those policies as well. So it'll be, I'm, hope, I'm looking forward to a, a, a vivid discussion today. Looking forward to a vivid conversation as well. You know, scientists continue to investigate different health benefits found in food. And recently, I had the opportunity to work with a group of scientists working on understanding the anti-cancer property found in a particular class of vegetables known as cruciferous vegetables. There are a number of compounds that have been shown to have anti-cancer properties, such as uh, phenylethyl isothiocyanate, um, moringa isothiocyanate, and just different compounds in the isothiocyanate family. So we were discussing this, and one of the perspectives was that instead of working on these compounds, finding the anti-cancer properties, and then going through the drug development process of um, you know, the clinical trials and, and just the regular drug development process, how about understanding this compound well enough that we can make dietary recommendations by we, I mean, publishing papers that can help dietitians, physicians uh, make dietary recommendations to people based on some of those findings. So one of the investigators mentioned that that would have been desirable, but the FDA would never permit such to happen, that when food, any kind of food, any type of food or food uh, product has health benefit, it is classified as drug. So I know that different um, departments and different offices in, in at the FDA that manages um, different processes, but it, I was just curious to know 
where do we draw the line between food and drugs? So when food has health benefits and um, people can actually be, um, people can actually benefit from a consistent diet of these food types. And now basing it on evidence generated in the lab saying people should go on a particular diet so that they can maintain their health or so that they can prevent the onset of a particular disease or something like that, you know, is not permitted based on some policies and laws. So I just want to understand that better. I was wondering if you could shed some light on how this classification works. When food becomes beneficial, why should it be regarded as a drug or what is really going on um, that we need to understand better? So, so again, the, 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 whether something is a drug or a food, a food ingredient, um, is determined by the law, not by the statute. Mm. FDA administers that. So if, if the statutory definition, if that particular use of that substance falls under the, stat under the statutory definition of a drug, and that includes not only the, the intended use, but the claims that are made with it, the law mandates that that be regulated as a drug. It's, okay. not, it's not up to FDA to make that determination. Okay. FDA looks at the available information and the way the, 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 uh, the uh, ingredient or the product is marketed and any claims made on it. Okay. Right. So in the food space, it's very interesting right now because there is, there's a lot of innovation going on. There's a lot of, uh, as I think as one of your previous speakers was talking about using plant-based foods and, and exploiting plants as a source of proteins, as, as, an, as a source of other ingredients, perhaps using transgenesis uh, or introducing genes. We're also seeing the use of um, microbes to produce macro and micro ingredients uh, that have never been in the food supply before. So they're, mm -hmm. they're mining the, the sequence databases to identify proteins that have the particular technological effect they're looking for in terms of the foods they're making. So we're seeing uh, also uh, an explosion in innovative foods where people are trying to, or they're not just trying, they are developing foods without um, animals, for example. There are examples of uh, companies that are making coffee without coffee plants. Uh, they, and then they're quite popular. One of them is out on, in Seattle. Um, there are people who are developing uh, a way to produce human milk in culture um, with, with, uh, with human cells, or, or they also tried with bovine cells to produce milk. So there's, there's an incredible amount of innovation going on in, in not only in the ingredient space, but in the uh, food space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, interesting. There's, there, like you said, there's a lot going on, um, a lot of innovation going on. So I'll move on to um, talking about cultured meat and um, mm -hmm. cultured seafood, which is um, one of the newest innovations that we're seeing on the market. It's exciting. However, um, but my question is, how do you regulate this industry? It's new, it's, um, it's exciting, but we have questions. For me, for instance, as a scientist, one thing I've known for so long is how um, our cell culture could be very tricky. 
um, sometimes it works, especially when you want to do it at scale. Of course, when you're just starting and it's just a few, um, a few circles here and there, but when you're doing at scale to fill the masses, how do you regulate something like that to ensure that um, you keep contamination down, you, um, uh, you do not expose people to uh, specific compounds that could be harmful um, to them, not just on the short term. Right? Thinking if we continue consuming these products for over a pre prolonged period of time, what will be the impact on people's health? So, uh, and these are some of the things that you might not know um, until you see a large population size showing particular symptoms and then you trace it back to, oh, they all had this meal for this period of time. So I was just thinking if there's any, uh, something in place to regulate this industry as they take off because they are taking off. So, so all of, Julie, all of the things you've mentioned are things we are uh, aware of and are looking at. Um, right. in, in terms of the the cell cultured meats. Uh, we are working closely with the developers. We don't have a, a specific policy in place. And what we're learning from the developers is that they are taking different approaches. And we are evaluating what they're what they're doing and providing them guidance as they're developing the technology. And you know, it, we're in the foods program. Um, Part of FDA, the Center for Biological uh, Research and Evaluation, CBER, um, is, is very much familiar with cell cultures and the use of cell cultures to produce biologics. So we do have knowledge within FDA to help us in terms of uh, developing policies around it. We're not there yet, I'll be honest with you. And we're, and we, but we are, we are actively working on this and identifying uh, where we think there might, might be safety concerns. And, and our approach, it, it just is, there's a parallel to this. Um, I mentioned that we, we, we also have a, a, a program for foods derived from new varieties of plants. Um, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, transgenesis, the introduction of DNA to plants to create transgenic plants was uh, really starting to develop with the first one being Calgene tomatoes. And, we, and in 1992, we published a, a, a policy framework on what we thought were the types of questions from a scientific perspective and also from a legal perspective uh, uh, that developers needed to address. And this sort of is a, it really illustrates sort of the, the challenges that we have as regulators. We have a law, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The only authorities that are expressly pre-market authorities in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act is the food additive and color additive petition processes. Everything else is post-market. So, you know, it's not, you know, it, we don't have the authority to require new plant varieties to undergo pre-market review. We don't have authority to have, you know, foods derived from cell-cultured meat to go under pre-market review. But we do, have the, we do have authorities under the act to ensure that food is safe. And so we can work with industry to develop guidance, to develop policies, to ensure that these, these technologies are lawful, but also safe. But it's, 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 a, it's a process where it allows the agency to use the best available science to drive its decisions. 
um, unless the, unless the statute is changed. So if you, if you if you're referring to individual ingredients, um, I can talk about my office. My office has about 115 people. We have pre-market review programs for food additive petitions and color additive petitions. These are formal. These are very formal rulemakings and require uh, amendments and, and publications in the Federal Register. We do about six of those per year. Most of those are color additives because, um, I don't know if you wanna get into the discussion, but there's no, there's no grass exclusion or exemption for color additive uses. So if, you're, if you fall into the, your use falls under a color additive use, you are required to come in with a food additive, a color additive petition, otherwise the food is adulterated and, and unlawful. So we do five or six of those a year. Um, the grass notification program does somewhere somewhere between 60 or 70, responds to 60 or 70 grass notices per year. That's a voluntary program. But that's, that's the way most new ingredients to get a response from FDA. The other program that we have is uh, the food contact notification program. And we average about 100 responses to, to food contact notifications per year. All of these numbers I'm giving you is per, per fiscal year. Okay. So the, the program in our office is responsive, but we have, we have the resources we have. Um, you know, if, if to, we we're being challenged and asked to develop policies, and it, uh, not only in terms of the cell cultured meat and looking at the science of that, but we're also looking to adapt our, our policies around new plant varieties and adapting to the, 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 the CRISPR technology and the, the genome editing technology right. as we go forward. Okay. And, and using our learnings from what we've learned from the transgenics technology to the genome editing technology and, and, and modulating our level of regulatory oversight appropriately within, within our statutory authorities. So it's, we're constant, we've been constantly evolving as a program since 1958. And of course, the statute from 1958 for food additives and 1960 for color additives is based on the uh, society's understanding at the time. Thank you so much. That was quite insightful. You know, I was just wondering if some of the policies we have in place currently, I know some of them are being um, in place for more than 30, 40 years. And we have a food industry that is very dynamic, a food industry where innovation um, and innovative products are coming to the marketplace almost every week. Um, so what can we do to ensure that these policies and these regulations do not amper innovation, instead it enables innovation? What can we do to help innovators easily bring our products to the marketplace. I, I, I do see where you are and I, and I think FDA does have a role there. And you know, when, when, we're, when we're asked this question by developers, innovators, we always encourage them to come in and talk to us early in their development phase, in their plans, so that they can understand what the regulatory framework is for this intended use, mm -hmm. and so that when you know, so when they begin to, to scale up, they don't find out that oh, sure I need a right. color additive regulation. I can't. I otherwise my, my product is illegal. Mm -hmm. 
so I mean this has worked very well with the new plant varieties um, and it actually is is what we encourage for all of the programs or the, whether it's the petition process the grass program or the food contact program come in and talk to us before you put your dossier together hmm. and actually we although the grass program is voluntary we believe that is has value because it provides uh, the manufacturer with some reassurances that they're meeting their requirements for a safe ingredient. Um, and it, it is also important, not only domestically, but internationally, if they try to trade their food uh, overseas, whether it's Europe or Asia or Africa or wherever, South America, anywhere else. They're gonna wanna know whether it's lawful, especially if it's an innovative ingredient. And in fact, we've, we have worked um, our office is also responsible and is, has been the delegate to the Codex Committee, the U.S. delegate to the Codex Committee on Food Additives. And we've been very instrumental and helpful to our industry, especially the innovative industry, getting their uh, innovative ingredient not only recognized in the, once it's recognized in the U.S., but recognized under the Codex, Codex process. So it's, it's recognized internationally so that it has some uh, status in food traded internationally. Okay, that's great. Um, and and your, your question, your answer was really on point, especially when you talked about innovators coming to you early. And um, that, yes. that, that's really valuable so that they know how, how far, what they need to put in, in place before they start, um, before they, they start um, developing their products. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.